Last week, we introduced the wild man we call John the Baptist. John was a prophet in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord with authority, authenticity, and urgency. People were drawn to him because he seemed to know. He seemed to know what was going on. He seemed to know God. This week, we revisit John at a very different time in his life. He is imprisoned, and he senses that his end is near, and he's losing hope. Gone is the assured, untamed prophet. It's telling of the prison system and its effects. John has joined the likes of the 2,220,000 adults who are incarcerated in U.S. federal and state prisons today. 112,000 people are imprisoned in the state of California, which is 135% our capacity. A large percentage of inmates have long-term sentences, 26% are serving a second strike sentence, 19 are lifers uh, with, a possi- with no possibility of parole. The rates of incarceration are significantly higher for black men. Among adult men, African Americans are incarcerated at a rate of 4,376 per 100,000. We know these striking figures. We know how scary, how systemic issues go into changing human lives. Like these men, John is a figure on the margins. If you've never read it, there's a great book about this called Jesus and the Disinherited. It's by Howard Thurman, who is uh, one of of MLK's teachers. I highly recommend checking it out. It's very small and very strong. But John is a Judean, a people occupied by one of the strongest empires in the history of humanity, and now he's imprisoned. And he's looking out outward for hope. He's looking to Jesus. This reminds me of that moment when MLK turned to Gandhi for his inspiration. Now, Gandhi was killed in 1948, uh, and MLK did not become a public leader until 1956. But during the Montgomery bus boycott of 56, King referred to Gandhi as the guiding light of our technique of nonviolent social change. In 1959, with the hope of connecting with that guiding light, MLK traveled to India for five weeks. King told a group of reporters gathered at the airport, to other countries I may go as a tourist, but to India I come as a pilgrim. In a radio address made his final evening in India, King reflected, since being in India, I am more convinced than ever that the method of nonviolent resistance is the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for justice and human dignity. In a real sense, Mahatma Gandhi embodied in his life certain universal principles that are inherent in the moral structure of the universe 
And these principles are as inescapable as the law of gravitation. That sense of Gandhi's work reflecting the structure of the universe is at the heart of Jesus' response to John. Jesus tells John that things are as they should be. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news. Wow. Jesus could have answered with a simple yes. <laughs> yes, I am he. He also could have broken into that prison and led John out to start an armed political revolution. But he doesn't. He tells John, it's happening. You know how the Messiah is to transform the world, and this is what it looks like. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. We live in a culture where taking offense is the default setting. You see it in the news, you see it on Twitter, you see it on Facebook, you see it everywhere. Some of that offense is targeted at events that require outrage, like the killing of Walter Scott by an officer who fired eight shots at his back as he ran away and was then released in a mistrial. This week, I couldn't, uh, couldn't help. I was listening to Bob Dylan's uh, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. Do you guys remember this song? Um, it tells us the death of, uh, of Hattie Carroll at the hands of uh, women and singer. Um, and how he basically gets off for this murder. But the, the repeating line is, you who philosophize distaste and criticize all fear, pull the rag away from your face, now ain't the time for your tears. It goes through that all throughout the song, repeatedly, repeatedly, now ain't the time for your tears, now ain't the time for your tears, until it gets to the moment when the murderer gets off on a six-month sentence. Throughout that song, Dylan targets aspects of misdirected offense. Granted, there were several other moments in this potential offense, in the case of Hattie Carroll, much as there were in the death of Walter Scott. We need to know when the time for our tears comes. But as social media reveals, some people will be offended at anything. Offended at the weather. Offended at traffic. Offended at their lunch. When we look at the list of things Jesus mentions to John, we, we don't initially think of people taking offense at these things, right? But I know that many would. I know there are many who actively work to end what they consider a culture of handouts. There are people who take offense at the poor getting relief. There are people, including the soon-to-be president, who think that too many, there are too many who have it too easy. 
who have it too easy to have their health restored at the hands of the government. Remember, several years ago, we started this program called Laundry Love uh, in Venice Beach, and we took over a laundromat once a month and did laundry for all those who were in need. And most people were excited about this, except there was, there was someone in our congregation that was getting her MSW, Master in Social Work, who said, this is a horrible idea. You're just going to perpetuate this culture of handouts. I get that, but I also know what it's like to, to be with someone who has their life restored by having their clothes washed. I know what it's like to spend that time with that person. I know them because of that activity. Otherwise, I would not have known them. People who are prone to offense seem surrounded by a great storm at all times. They remind me of uh, Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump. <laughs> Do you remember that moment when, uh, when Forrest and Lieutenant Dan are working on the shrimp boat and a huge storm comes through? Forrest had been, uh, you know, he'd been going to church and it didn't seem to be making a difference in their uh, shrimp catching. And Lieutenant Dan says, pardon my cursing, it's not a horrible one, but where the hell is this God of yours? And the voiceover, Forrest's voice says, it's funny that Lieutenant Dan should say that. I'm not going to do the accent, sorry, it's horrible. I apologize. Uh, because right then, God showed up. Lieutenant Dan straps himself to the top of the mast and curses at God. It's time for a showdown. You and me, I'm right here. Come and get me. The irony of that moment and of Lieutenant Dan following the loss of his legs is that Lieutenant Dan did what most of us do. We use offense as defense. I know it's a little confusing. It sounds a lot like that athletic motto, the best offense is a good defense. This is not that. But both statements reveal similar use of fear. Being offended helps shelter us from pain. It keeps us from the process of grief. Instead of acknowledging our suffering, we mask it in action. That pull toward action reminds us, reminds me of the negative reaction to handout culture. Particularly in the U.S., we have a sense of people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. They should earn what they get. They should work their way out of poverty and poor health. This is the opposite of something we hold to dear. Grace. In the Book of Common Prayer in the Catechism, it says, Grace is God's favor toward us, unearned and undeserved. By grace, God forgives our sins, enlightens our minds, stirs our hearts, and strengthens our wills. Grace comes to us from the outside. In 1943, while imprisoned by the Nazis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, 
and is completely dependent on the fact that the door to freedom has to be open from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. In Advent, we are surrounded by the walls of waiting, of hope, of expectation, of grace. Like Lieutenant Dan, we struggle through the storm looking for God, looking for hope, looking for grace. We look for God just as the people did in John's time, in Jesus' time. They went looking for God, and they felt God in John, not a guy in fancy clothes, not some scared or confused reed tossed by the storm, but a prophet. Despite the grandeur and the power of that prophet, Jesus the passage today reminds us we are no different. Jesus gives us that final line from the passage uh, that Sarah Thomas called, as we were talking it through, a Yoda riddle, which I kind of love. Um, it's not unlike a Zen Cohen. Among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is not a warning that John the Baptist isn't good enough for the kingdom of heaven. It's a reminder that God honors and cherishes the least. Over the next year, as we work our way through Matthew, we will hear this over and over again. The last shall be first. The least of these in Matthew 25. 25. Do you remember this passage? Just as you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. In this way, Matthew reveals how grace dismantles expectation. How grace looks at our rankings, our tendency towards competition. In grace, there is no first, last, up, down, outside, or inside. Everybody's in. It surrounds everything and everyone. Grace. It's like that scene in Forrest Gump just after the storm. The sun is out. The water is dead calm. And there is more shrimp than Forrest and Dan can pull in. Eventually, Dan is overwhelmed by that abundance. In a moment, sheer utter peace he throws himself overboard and swims slowly through still water reflecting the sunset whether you think you deserve it or not we all swim in that sea of grace. Amen.